Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the most disturbing aspects of the Supreme Court's recent ruling against vaccine mandates, and that is its implications going forward for all government oversight through departments and agencies such as OSHA and the EPA, whose expertise no longer counts and can be replaced by the whims and dogma of unelected political hacks in robes, otherwise known as the Federalist Society judges who dominate our judicial branch. Joining us to examine this power grab by the Supreme Court's right-wing majority is Kimberly Whaley, an author, lawyer, media commentator, and professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She is also a former assistant United States attorney, associate independent counsel in the Whitewater investigation, and author of How to Read the Constitution and Why, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, and the forthcoming book out soon, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, A Common Sense Guide to Everyday Dilemmas. We will discuss her article at the Bulwark, Here's Why Capital Insurrectionists Are Being Charged Under a Post-Enron Rule, and another Politico, the Supreme Court just made an incredible power grab. Then, with the recent arrest of Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers Militia, along with 10 others charged with seditious conspiracy, We'll look into their role in the January 6th insurrection and the extent of their plans to bring an arsenal of weapons stashed in Virginia to the Capitol to hold it hostage along with Speaker Pelosi, thus prompting Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act and martial law. Joining us for a profile of Stuart Rhodes is Spencer Sunshine, who has written about the U.S. white nationalist movement, including the alt-right, neo-Nazis and esoteric fascists, the patriot movement and militias and anti-Semitic currents for the past two decades. Then finally, with the British royal family having cut Prince Andrew loose and stripped him of his military trappings and Royal Highness title to defend himself in a trial brought by an underage victim of Epstein sex trafficking, We'll examine the symbiosis the royal family has with the tabloids, which is now coming back to haunt them. Joining us is Toby Miller, a visiting professor at Tulane University, research professor of the Graduate Division at the University of California, Riverside, and Sir Walter Murdoch, distinguished collaborator at Murdoch University. His most recent books are A COVID Charter, A Better World, Violence, The Persistence of Violence, and How Green Is Your Smartphone. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Kimberly Whaley, who's an author, lawyer, media commentator, and professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She's also a former assistant United States attorney, associate independent counsel in the Whitewater investigation, and the author of How to Read the Constitution and Why, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. And her forthcoming book out soon is How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, A Common Sense Guide to Everyday Dilemmas. And she has an article at the Bulwark, Here's Why Capital Insurrectionists Are Being Charged Under a Post-Enron Law, and another article at Politico, 
the Supreme Court just made an incredible power grab. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kimberly Whaley. Thanks for having me in. Well, thanks for joining us, and let's talk about this power grab on the part of the Supreme Court. And, of course, it's about this ruling that just came down, basically taking away OSHA's authority in terms of vaccinations and health in general. And I d- you just simply don't know whether it's going to extend to workplace safety. And what's at stake here is that the Congress has always given agencies these rulemaking powers on the assumption that they have the expertise to issue rulings. But now you're arguing that the Supreme Court and right-wing judges are in effect, they're going to decide which laws they like and which they don't like with virtually no oversight of constraints in what you describe as a power grab. So this is really a horrible portent, is it not? The weakening of of the government and the empowerment of these, what are they, political activists in robes? I think they are, unfortunately, Ian, political activists in robes. And I wouldn't have said that, you know, a few years ago about the United States Supreme Court. Of course, this court is, I say it's, it's engaging in a power grab because even though historically, of course, Supreme Court justices are human beings, they have different ideological and political points of view that inevitably creep into their decision making, right? If there's a 5-4 decision, it means there are good arguments on both sides and lawyers understand that most of law is gray area. It's not black and white. Uh, That being said, you know, for many years since, really since FDR uh, and the New Deal, where the court struck down a few statutes, basically arguing, listen, only Congress can make laws. Congress gets to legislate under Article One. Since the 1930s, the courts backed off on that and allowed basically Congress to create agencies. When I say agencies, anything with the word department of or commission in it, like the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, and give them rulemaking authority. We call them regulations. A study out of Michigan recently uh, found that 99 percent in of federal laws. When I say laws, not just laws out of Congress, but regulatory laws, 99% of laws actually come out of agencies. Only 1% come out of Congress. So if these uh, now six people on the U.S. Supreme Court who are unelected were put on there with no Democratic input because of uh, Mitch McConnell getting rid of the filibuster, three of them are on there very divisively. If they start striking down um, the ability of agencies to make laws, what we could see is chaos, an unregulated economy, uh, day-to-day life, everything from child welfare laws to import-export regulation to financial markets um, to health care, on and on and on. And, you know, as you indicated, OSHA has this very, very broad authority. It's, it's plain in the statute that they had the authority to issue these vaccines. The court sort of did a tortured analysis to justify why it wouldn't wouldn't uphold the vaccine. And it really is a significant shift, potentially, when it comes to the Constitution itself, not just vaccines. Well, the other ruling, of course, the five to four ruling, allowing healthcare workers to be protected is extraordinary in as much as the four justices, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett, they basically voted against protecting health care workers. That is unbelievable. Exactly. That was under the Social Security Act, um, which dates all the way back to the New Deal. And essentially under OSHA, the first case when it comes to workers, and the, the majority said, well, you know, 
COVID isn't just about the workplace. It infects people everywhere. So only if you have a disease that somehow only makes its way into the workplace can OSHA mandate a vaccine, which is kind of illogical, right? I mean, that's the problem with this pandemic is that it gets everywhere. But at least I think Justice Kavanaugh sided with the progressives in in the Medicare, Medicaid healthcare worker case, because at least you can say, well, healthcare workers are there about healthcare and vaccines involve healthcare. Um, but yeah, as you indicate, three justices said, even under the Social Security Act, um, the idea that, you know, these hospitals get money from the federal government under Medicare and Medicaid. And if you're going to take the money, they get to decide sort of the conditions of you getting the money. And that includes keeping patients and healthcare workers safe. And you're, yeah, three justices uh, dissented from that, which is actually before. I mean, three justices uh, joined Justice Thomas's dissent. So there are four votes on the U.S. Supreme Court for not even requiring healthcare workers to be vaccinated as a precondition um, to accepting Medicare, Medicaid dollars that affects, you know, thousands and thousands of patients. Um, and we, you know, this is the disease continues to kill people and our hospitals are running out of beds and uh, the president is having to send military support to, to just do triage in hospitals. And we now have a few people unelected on the Supreme Court binding the hands of the president and Congress from doing something about it. Again, that to me is, um, it's almost, Ian, like, okay, we don't have a monarchy, but we've got these Supreme Court justices that now think somehow they are kings and queens. And it's very, very disturbing because there's no accountability for them, unlike a president. So if we had kept the vaccine decision in the Biden administration, then people could go to the ballot box and vote out Biden and say, we don't like what you do with vaccines. We don't like the amount of power given to OSHA or given to, um, you know, uh, HHS to manage vaccines in hospitals and other healthcare facilities. We can say we don't like Congress. We're going to vote you out of office because you gave too much power to these agencies. We can't do anything about the U.S. Supreme Court, except, as some would say, change the configuration of the court through Congress. But, of course, the Republicans, you know, like this court. They've worked very you know, hard to get this this ideological right-wing court on there. So with the filibuster, there's there's no chance of changing the configuration of the court in this moment. And again, I'm speaking with Kimberly Whaley, who's an author, lawyer, media commentator, and professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She is also a former assistant United States attorney, associate independent counsel in the Whitewater investigation, and the author of How to Read the Constitution and Why, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. And her forthcoming book out soon is How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, A Common Sense Guide to Everyday Dilemmas. And she has an article at The Bulwark, Here's Why Capital Insurrectionists Are Being Charged Under a Post-Enron Law, and another at Politico, The Supreme Court Just Made an Incredible Power Grab. So let's talk a little bit about the insurrection and the insurrectionists. Kevin McCarthy has defied the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th, and it's extraordinary that CNN just uh, uncovered an audio from an interview that the minority leader of the House, Kevin McCarthy, gave on January the 12th to a radio station in Bakersfield in which he said that uh, Trump has responsibility for January the 6th, and he told me personally that he does have some responsibility. And then he went on to call for a 
But literally, it's hard to believe this, but I'm telling you, we'll, in fact, we'll play the audio. He went on then to call for a bipartisan investigation into January the 6th. Let's play that audio. I say he has responsibility. He told me personally that he does have some responsibility. I think a lot of people do. But what I proposed, which I think history will say I'm right, because it's the right thing to do, I believe, have a bipartisan commission and get all your facts. Actually work through the grand jury to find out at the end, instead of predetermining whether someone's guilty or not. So, Kimberly Whaley, you just heard Kevin McCarthy, the real Kevin McCarthy, speaking on January the 12th, shortly after the January 16th insurrection. And clearly, he has had a lot of conversations with President Trump. He admitted to having one in which President Trump admitted that he had some responsibility. And, of course, he was subsequently impeached for it. That evidence would have been important in that impeachment, but it would also be very important in the January 6th select committees, public hearings that are coming up, don't you think? I mean, and the fact that he's defying the committee, I just think makes you wonder, are these guys afraid or are they just think they can be defiant and they can tough it out? Well, hard to hard to my guess is it's probably both of them. Um, and it's not just, of course, Kevin McCarthy, but Jim Jordan said he would talk now is, is being difficult and saying no. Mark Meadows said he would talk now is saying difficult being no, saying no. And, you know, not just Kevin McCarthy, but people like then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell came out after the insurrection and after the vote not to impeach him, condemning Donald Trump. So we're now a year out. The Republicans know that they've got the midterms in their sight, potentially the Senate in their sight. They're salivating, I think, uh, to take over the House and the Senate. And Joe Biden's poll numbers are are lagging. Um, Of course, we his build that better plan where he put all his political capital in that that failed. Um, You know, Omicron is sweeping the country. There are other you know challenges with his administration. And I think they're running out the clock. That is, they they're hoping that they can avoid testifying between now and November. And then when, if the midterms go to Republicans, which historically has always been the case with the minority party from the presidency after, after a presidential election, then they will shut down the, not only shut down the January 6th commission, but turn the guns on Democrats and start investigating Democrats for, I don't know, Antifa, who knows. Right. Um, But the other wrinkle here, so that, that's the kind of playing out the clock piece. The other piece is, as you know, Ian, is that, um, you know, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland has been getting a lot of criticism for not going after the big fish when it comes to what happened on January 6th. There have been over 700 prosecutions of the insurrectionists, the people on the ground, um, relatively low level misdemeanors. I think the longest prison term, a little over four four or five years, something like that. But we had a whopper of an indictment this week where he charged a conspiracy um a a seditious conspiracy, a conspiracy to effectively overthrow the government in which he named the then head of the Oath Keepers and uh, 10 other individuals who were stockpiling firearms and literally planning this. What does this suggest? Suggest that they've got evidence of a meeting of the minds to overturn the election, not just create chaos in that moment. And I think the question for Americans is not just, okay, is Donald Trump looped into that? Um, But are people that are sitting members of Congress and up for election reelection potentially in November, were they looped in in that? And I think there is potentially some liability there uh, for some of these people. So, you know, someone like Kevin McCarthy can stall it out or he could comply and potentially sort of 
claim the Fifth Amendment and not testify on certain questions, of course, that would be politically very damaging. So I think it's a tightrope walk, um, but it's vital, I think, that the committee get the facts out to the American people, even if Merrick Garland can't uh, start prosecuting or indicting bigger fish between now and November. Um, But of course, even if the the Republicans take over Congress, Merrick Garland's not going away until, unless and until Joe Biden is out of office. Well, this whole era is about shattering norms, and the person who is at the forefront of shattering norms is Donald Trump. He's always been underestimated because he does stuff that most people wouldn't do. He he pushes the envelope much further, and that, I think, comes from the fact that he was tutored by Roy Cohn, who was an expert in pushing to the farthest edges of the law. And isn't that what's going on here across the, all kinds of the various activities that are being uncovered by the January 6th committee and the press have uncovered it up until now. And the latest one, of course, is that the attorney general in the state of Michigan, she disclosed just the other day that there were at least seven states in which Republican so-called electors showed up with phony ballots to say that Trump had won in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And you, in fact, there's video of them showing up at the Michigan State House, and the, the state police chief is telling them they can't come in. But then they sent these phony Electoral College ballots to the Library of Congress and to the Senate. So isn't that against the law? I mean, the Michigan State Attorney said it's under state law. You get a 14-year sentence for forging the public record, and election law forgery is a five-year sentence. And she's referred all this to the U.S. Attorney in Michigan. So, um, sure. Though, so filing false false documents would be a, a, a crime both at the state and the federal level. But back to conspiracy, um, there are two two plans here. I think, and you got to break it out. One would be plotting to basically have a bloodless, violentless coup, and that would be submitting false certification so that uh, Vice President Pence could say, listen, I can't certify this state because we have two, two competing ballots. I think that was plan A. Um, plan B, then, that didn't work because Pence didn't stand up and do it, which I think he, he should really be given a lot of accolades for, that he stood up to Donald Trump and this pressure when other people won't within that party. Um, but plan B was, okay, we'll storm the Capitol. So so I think it's it's not just falsifying documents. It gets into this broader question of conspiracy. And, and, and I agree with you. Not only did he shatter norms, but we're seeing democracy die across the globe. Um, and this is this is an old playbook, right? It's not – Americans don't understand we could lose our democracy. And Donald Trump understands and those and his cronies understand how this works. You attack the media. You you use violence. You you stoke violence. You you smash norms. You put um, loyalists in positions of government. And you know um, people like Mussolini understood this by putting criminals in his in in the top tiers of government, knowing they'd violate they'd violate laws with no problem. And this is what we will see if if the Democrats don't manage somehow to get some voting rights legislation passed. And if people on the ground don't start swelling up for democracy itself, we are going to see, in my view, it it die because nothing's stopping it at this point. Nothing is stopping these forces of essentially taking, um, canceling people's votes, saying having what we will see is politicians picking who stays in power. That's not democracy. And that's that's where we're headed. It's not just Donald Trump's fault. 
Um, it's partially Donald Trump. It's partially his party. And it's partially Democrats and, frankly, Americans who just think this could never happen. Um, and it can. And it is happening. And just in the last couple of minutes, when you talk about Plan A and Plan B, arguably Plan A was a coup attempt, which we know from the various efforts to sway Vice President uh, Pence and the Eastman memo and Jeffrey Clark's machinations at the DOJ. And that was the coup attempt, but it failed. And Plan B then was to direct the crowd to the Capitol, and that was the insurrection. And then Plan C, as far as I know, was that if the insurrection got out of hand and these alternative slates showed up, as you just mentioned, then Trump could then institute the Insurrection Act and declare martial law. That's not... I mean, in other words, this is why we desperately need to find out what the hell is going on here, because there's just so much evidence when you talk about plans, 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 and A, B, and C. Who is making these plans? Exactly. And we need to know who inside government, including sitting members of Congress, were part of that. Just a couple points. On Plan A, right, just just so people understand, a conspiracy is a meeting of the minds, an agreement to violate the law and a step in that direction. It doesn't require that you actually succeed in violating the law. If you plot to murder someone and and it's foiled, you know, because the person ends up in intensive care and not dead, it still is an attempted murder or conspiracy. It's the, we want to dissuade the desire to even plan crimes, right? So plan A doesn't require that the insurrection be achieved in order for there to be a conspiracy. And as you indicate, there's a lot of evidence publicly that there was not only uh, some kind of agreement, we have, you know, signal encrypted messages between Oath Keepers, etc. We don't know where they went to the, the higher echelons of government. We certainly have acts, you know, in that direction. As for Plan C, the Insurrection Act, I mean, we, we know also some a number of these people that are already looped into the, to the criminal justice system, those sort of the people on the ground who said, we thought it was our understanding that Donald Trump was going to come to our, to our aid with the Insurrection Act and with the military. Um, how did they get that information? Why did they believe that, Ian? That's the piece that we also need to understand. And Congress, I, I've heard, you know, 30 lawyers, investigators, others working on this. They've issued up over a thousand search warrants out of the FBI separately. So, you know, Biden is going full steam ahead and Congress, Democrats on full steam ahead. And they're doing it on behalf of the American people and democracy and our children and grandchildren. It's not a red versus blue thing. Ian. it's a we the people thing. And, you know, I'm on the edge of my feet with uh, fingers crossed that we can make it through. Well, Kimberly Whaley, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I always enjoy talking to you. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Kimberly Whaley, who's an author, lawyer, media commentator, and professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She's also a former assistant United States attorney, associate independent counsel in the Whitewater investigation, and the author of How to Read the Constitution and Why, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. And her forthcoming book out soon is How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, a Common Sense Guide to Everyday Dilemmas. And she has an article, The Bulwark, Here's Why Capital Insurrectionists Are Being Charged Under a Post-Enron Law, and another at Politico. The Supreme Court just made an incredible power grab. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into the recent arrest of the leader of the Oath Keepers, along with 10 others charged with seditious conspiracy.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Spencer Sunshine, who's written about the U.S. white nationalist movements, including the alt-right, neo-Nazis and esoteric fascists, the patriot movement and militias, and anti-Semitic currents for the past two decades. Welcome to Background Briefing, Spencer Sunshine. Thanks, Ian. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Well, thanks for joining us, Spencer. And on Thursday, the Justice Department charged 11 defendants, including the leader of the Oath Keepers and 10 others, with seditious conspiracy related to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And, of course, this has some serious consequences, particularly for lawmakers who might have been involved, because under the 14th Amendment, if you're charged with sedition, then you can't run for public office. But since you study and follow this group, among others, the Oath Keepers, what do you know about what went on then and what they might have on them? Because apparently they've got quite a lot of communications between Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, and others like Thomas Caldwell. And of course, we all have seen the video of the assault on the Capitol of the so-called stack of military-trained guys in military uniforms going through the crowd into the Capitol in a formation where they each have their one behind the other with a hand on the other, the guy in front of his shoulder. So that got a lot of attention at the time. So let's begin with what do you think the communications are that the Justice Department has and the FBI has that would lead them to charge seditious conspiracy? Uh, well, it seems that Rhodes was egging on his followers uh, immediately before people entered the Capitol. He has long been known for his outlandish language, for calling for civil war. It's actually a little surprising that almost nothing has happened to him up to this point, considering how inflammatory and threatening and violent his language and his calls have been. So I think it's finally, you know, bit him in the ass that he's done this um, because the, his followers, you know, finally took him at his word. They were in a place to enact the things he had been saying for over a decade now, his group founded in 2009. So in a sense, there's really no surprise. And it's about time that the, um, the chickens came home for him. And how much is this organization, the Oath Keepers, comprised of trained veterans and former Marines, etc.? It's hard to say. There's been a lot of speculation about it. Um, the organization is supposed to be current and former military first responders and police. It seems like it's much broader than that. There have been leaks of the membership data. Recently, there was a leak and people tried to go through it to say it's a it's to, it's not quite right to say it's a paper organization. Um, there are real members. There are committed members. It does seem like people go through this organization very quickly. Rhodes doesn't have a good reputation with the militias and is, is known as something of a grifter. So what more do you know about him? Because I understand uh, he's a lawyer. I also understand he's, is it his ex-wife or his current wife who's posting all kinds of dirt on him online? She's trying to get out, <laughs> get a divorce, and he being a lawyer is frustrating her. What, give us a sense of what you know about this guy personally. 
He's a funny character. He um, did go to law school and was a lawyer. He has been disbarred as a lawyer uh, because he was spending too much time on his politics and not uh, helping his clients. His ex or his wife, still wife, Tasha Adams, has been trying to fundraise to get a divorce from him. He's apparently trying to stymie the divorce. So she has a GoFundMe and she posts updates because, of course, she has the inside dirt. And uh, she's quite elated at this. I think she hopes that she can get the divorce with him <laughs> dealing with his legal problems and possibly in jail. So his group, uh, like I said before, he's, he's thought of as something as a grifter. He uses this wild language. He gets his group, which moved from being a membership-based group into being an armed group and more of a, at first he said, we're not a militia. And now he's, you know, very much into the militia thing. They would pop up at really high profile media events. He went to the Bundy ranch when there was the conflict between Cliven Bundy and the federal government in 2014. He popped up at the Malheur refuge where the younger Bundy, Ammon Bundy held an arms, you know, standoff with uh, authorities there as well in 2016. So he'll sort of parachute in and get himself in front of the camera. Um, so I, I'm sure he also, it's very interesting, at one point at the beginning of the Trump administration, the Oath Keepers with him were working with fascists, outright fascists, uh, at demonstrations for the first period of time up through Charlottesville, um, the Unite the Right demonstration there where he pulled back and he saw that the optics of that weren't going to be very good. So he'll like, you know, uh, bob and weave around wherever he thinks he can get get in front of the movement, the far right movement and get in front of the cameras. And again, I'm speaking with Spencer Sunshine, who has written about the U.S. white nationalist movement, including the alt-right, neo-Nazis and esoteric fascists, the patriot movement and militias and anti-Semitic currents for the past two decades. So on Wednesday, a grand jury handed down these indictments, these charges of, uh, of 11, including uh, Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, charging them with seditious conspiracy. And the Justice Department released these charges, which said that the conspirators opposed the lawful transfer of presidential power by force by preventing, hindering, or delaying by force execution of laws governing the transfer of power. So previously, most of the those that have been charged, over 700, in the storming of the Capitol, they've been charged with conspiracy to obstruct congressional proceedings. But this is different, sedition. Apparently, it's a lot harder to prove, and of course, it's politically loaded, because as I said earlier, any government official or elected representative is barred from electoral office uh, if they're charged with sedition under the 40th Amendment. Right. It's um, it's an unusual charge. I don't think that Rhodes has ever run for office, so that might have less an effect on him. You know, it's clear that some people were doing exactly what you've you know read for the sedition charge, that they were trying to stop the lawful transfer of power. Um, I don't know how many, you know, of the 2,000 people who were involved in this did, but Clearly, a number of them were, were intent and very purposefully tried to do this. Um, we'll see. The Oath Keepers are, more than other groups except the Proud Boys, very obvious by the fact that they belong to a membership-based organization and were in uniforms and stuff. So they become more of an obvious target. Um, and so does, you know, Rhodes egging them on, you know, after um, after the, the siege had begun, he, he egged on you know, his members. And so he's in a particularly perilous situation. I think we need to be a little careful about 
cheering on things like sedition laws. They can easily b- blow back on other people. Um, but in this case, it does sound like it's uh, pretty dead on about, um, you know, applying to them. Well, well before January the 6th, though, in November of 2020, in an online meeting, Rhodes said, we're going to defend the president, the duly elected president, and we call on him to do what needs to be done to save our country. Because if you don't, guys, you're going to be in a bloody, bloody civil war and bloody. You can call it an insurrection or you can call it a war or fight. So I guess that, you know, that <laughs> that was right after Trump's defeat. So not that, it, of course, he and Trump accept that. But uh, right. has, has that mean he's been at the forefront of this, organizing this insurrection, if that's what his attitude was on in November? No, I mean, I don't think so. He always uses language like that. Um, and like I said, it hasn't come back to impact him so far. It's a little wild to see him over year after year use that. But what happens if you use that language, even if you yourself don't mean it, like it's a kind of shtick for you, the people who are attracted to it take it seriously. And if you say it enough times, um, you know, someone will act on it. So, and he clearly, by his communications, seemed to give his appro- encourage and give his approval of people acting on it. Um, so he has called this for 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 years and years and years. He's called on these things. He's called for bloody civil war. And so, you know, now he's you know going to get the implications of that. Yeah, because in November the fifth of twenty twenty, he said. We aren't going through this without a civil war. Too late for that. Prepare your mind, body, and spirit. And on the actual day, of course, he said, patriots are taking it into their own hands. They've had enough. And that's when he and company marched into the capital. So the other part of it, though, that's interesting, and I'd heard this from law enforcement officials, is the extent to which the plan went beyond decertifying the vote and perhaps capturing or killing the vice president. The plan was to hold the Capitol, you know, literally as a trophy, (laughs) and that they'd stash their arms in Virginia, in a hotel in Virginia, because of the gun laws in D.C. being so strict. And one of the people, one of the Oath Keepers has been charged is Edward Vallejo, who apparently stashed these weapons as a part of his quick reaction force. So do you think that we're going to learn more about their plans? I mean, they may have been crazy, they may have been fanciful, but they were serious. Yes. Uh, I think what happens, I think what's happened so far is that this clear, like having an armed occupation might have been on the minds of some people, but clearly wasn't on the minds of most people, or there would have been a lot more weapons there and they wouldn't have worried about the gun laws, I think. Um, so I think with the Capitol takeover, you have a bunch of different people thinking all kinds of different things, like some people who plotted it and were very serious and were, you know, they did exactly what they intended to, and, and other people who just sort of like going along in a demonstration and, you know, all the police are waving us into the building. So they went in, you know, and a lot of people have been charged basically with trespassing because of that, which I think is fair enough. But other people, you know, are very serious. And clearly some of the Oath Keepers, like that was like their intent was was going to be to um, to really, in a sense, overthrow the, the, you know, overthrow the U.S. government, overthrow its functioning. 
So do you think that the critics of Merrick Garland of appearing to be too soft on the insurgents is having an effect here? It would seem that since he's been under under attack, Garland recently had a press conference, or at least made a statement, indicating that they were going to get tough. And now you have the sedition conspiracy charges now for the oath, the eleven oath keepers. I imagine there are others as well that might well be charged. So, is that to say that the pressure on Garland has made him step up a little bit here? As somebody that's studied these people forever at least for two decades, Spencer. Uh, Have you been frustrated with the DOJ? I haven't exactly been frustrated with the DOJ, but I have, through things not related to the far right, watched um, where these kinds of of heavy federal charges go down, and it's incredibly politicized. So when you ask, is it pressure, like all of these kinds of charges, domestic terrorism charges and everything are entirely... 100% political, especially when they're not expected, right? So, um, you know, obviously I'm not uh, privy to whatever um, was going on behind discussions with Garland, uh, but, you know, this is is 100% of him him making a political decision. These are political charges. Well, but they're criminal acts. Right, right. But I'm saying saying he's being, he's making the choice. He's making a political choice by doing it, just the same as, like, people make the FBI and such make political choices to focus on one group or another. So he's clearly being swayed. This isn't a neutral charge, right? He's being swayed one way or the other. He's calculating different things to decide this. It's not like a, just a neutral kind of decision. This is what happens to the left and the right. You know, the government, they have limited resources. They choose who they want to go after depending on the, uh, the, the mood and the, the way the winds are blowing at the moment. But given how people like Tucker Carlson are trying to rewrite history and whitewash this whole event and blame it on Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And now they've got this guy, Epps, that they've, this character that they are hoisting. And even yet, even yesterday at a Senate hearing, uh, Senator Ted Cruz again repeated this lie about this character, Epps, who was in these rallies before and during January the 6th, and they say that he was an FBI informant. The guy's actually gone public and testified. He even talked to the House Select Committee saying this is nonsense, and yet they keep pushing this stuff. So my sense is that how do you stop the rewriting of history and stop trying to turn these traitors into martyrs and heroes? Surely that somebody's got to set an example and put these guys on trial and convict them to shut people up like Ted Cruz and Tucker Carlson. Well, I, I'm sure that's the intention behind doing it. I mean, what the Repu- the Republicans have really gone off the deep end. I mean, even this guy Epps, the, the basis of the accusation that he works for the government is like the flimsiest kind of thing. So yeah, the you know the Tucker Carlsons and and Ted Cruz's and Matt Matt Gates and and others are just spinning these outrageous lies. It's something we don't quite see so much in the U.S. You see it in other parts of the world, in Russia or Latin America. You know, leaders just lying through their teeth, just spreading bald propaganda unchecked. So, you know, this is their desperate attempt to 
to mobilize their base and, and maintain power because they rightly or wrongly see it slipping, you know, with, with demographic changes and losing the popular vote, you know, see power slipping out of their hands unless they take some sort of action to make sure that there isn't a democratic process and, and their, um, their level of principle has been lowered, if not dismissed entirely in doing this. So, yeah, I mean, it is a dangerous situation right now. I mean, I'm less of an alarmist than many other people who do the work that I do, but I am very afraid that the the mainstream of the Republican Party is going to try to dismantle the, the democratic system. So it's understandable. I mean, it's understandable that sedition charges have been leveled. If not now, it will certainly be next time if they get a slap on the wrist. But just in closing, if the voter suppression continues and the next election in 2022 is stolen by the Republicans, there'll be a lot of angry Democrats who, won't one, won't have been able to vote, and two, will have their votes stolen. And they may take to the streets, and won't that provide an excuse for the, what, 21 million Americans on the right who believe that Trump is a legitimate leader and that Biden is an imposter? Well, um, I... I think the mainstream of the Republican Party is more ready to call for, you know, violence and dismantle the illegitimacy of the system if they lose than the mainstream of the Democratic Party, who constantly seek uh, reconciliation. Um, and so I don't know how many Democrats are going to be in the streets, like, honestly. Sure. I was um, thinking that they provide the right with an excuse. I mean, in other words, are the guys that believe that civil war is inevitable, are they going to go to the street, or would they be happy with a Republican victory? Oh, I, I think they'll be happy enough with a Republican victory. Um, I, I don't. I think the Civil War will happen if they think that um, the election has been stolen again, and now it's not just Trump who's, who's saying this, but like a much broader spectrum of um, conservatives, a, a broader spectrum of elected officials and, and media figures. That's, that's what I'm really worried about if they lose. Sure. Well, Spencer Sunshine, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, thank you, Ian. It's always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Spencer Sunshine, who's written about the U.S. white nationalist movement, including the alt-right, neo-Nazis and esoteric fascists, the patriot movement, and militias and anti-Semitic currents for the past two decades. We can take a brief station break and back examining the symbiosis between the British royal family and the tabloids, which is now coming back to haunt them. Well, I'm going to tell you, fascists, you may be surprised. People in this world are getting organized. You're bound to lose. You fascists bound to lose. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Toby Miller, a visiting professor at Tulane University and a research professor of the Graduate Division of the University of California, Riverside, and the Sir Walter Murdoch Distinguished Collaborator at Murdoch University. His most recent books are A COVID Charter, A Better World, Violence, The Persistence of Violence, and How Green Is Your Smartphone. Welcome to Background Briefing. Toby Miller. Good to be with you, Ian. So, Toby, I don't mean to turn you into the uh, royal correspondent, but you do uh, 
uh, fulfill that function uh, on Sky News quite a lot. So let's talk about what happened, which is uh, pretty tectonic, isn't it? The royal family basically stripping Prince Andrew of his military rankings, and they're essentially cutting him loose, are they not? Uh, He's on his own as far as paying for this civil suit that's now been set to go to trial in New York. Well, that's right, Ian. It stands in stark contrast to back in the mid to late 90s when his older brother, Charles, the Duke of Wales, was going through a divorce with Diana and Momsey stepped in to pay for all the costs because Momsey is one of the wealthiest people in world history. Momsey's not doing that now. And furthermore, she's removing Andrew Albert Christian Edward, Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, from, as you say, his military trappings. And they are quite significant because of the, the number of bits of the armed forces that he represents. And it's also significant that there was an open letter sent to the Queen by 150 retired service people, nearly all of whom were in working class jobs, not officer class, mostly men, some women, saying that they're proud of their service, but astonished given the decade in which it's been known that this man associated with Jeffrey Epstein routinely, that he's been allowed to hold on to these symbolically quite important positions. So, yes, he's not going to have Mumsy's money. Mumsy's taken away his regalia. And essentially, there's no route back. Instead of this being a suspension of these duties, it's the end of them. And they are going to be, as the expression is, reallocated across the royal family. And the military part is very important, Ian, because one aspect that's crucial to the mythology of this family is its part in the British Empire, not only symbolically, but also, of course, as people who have fought in the war. And one part of his defence in the case that is being heard is related to his own military service in the early 80s as a pilot in the Navy in the Malvinas slash Falklands War. Well, I don't think it's appreciated very much, but here in the United States, uh, if you join the military or the government, you swear an oath to uphold and protect the Constitution of the United States. In the UK, if you join the military and the government, you swear an oath to the Queen. Yes, that's right. There is no written Constitution in Britain in the sense that we have it here and most countries have. Instead, it's a cobbled together doctrine based in part on some documents, for example, legal decisions and parliamentary decisions, but by and large, it's about consent rather than legalisms. And so that notion of, in a sense, the state being incarnate, not in a constitution, but in a person and a family, is extremely strong. And again, it goes back to the uh, role of the military in creating an empire. Remember, there are only 22 countries in the world that have not been invaded by Britain. We've still got a long way to go here in the United States, Ian. (laughs) Well, he's certainly uh, losing the title, Your Royal Highness. I mean, that was um, a part of what was going on with Prince Harry out here in Santa Barbara, too. I guess he he didn't quite lose it all. He's got his foot in the door. But it's a big blow. It is a very big blow. And unlike Harry, 
this guy doesn't have any particular skills or appeal of his own. Uh, he's about my age, a little bit older. And when I was in my 20s, he was known critically by women as Randy Andy because of his cavalier attitude to women's physical integrity and security, because he regarded everybody as a potential sexual mark. This was simply well known, quite apart from the issues connected directly with Epstein and with the trafficking of children. So he's someone who doesn't have a lot to fall back on. Uh, he's also not a very impressive speaker. His interviews are laden with ums and ahs. He has been bailed out of various failed business ventures by his mother in the past. He's not an impressive or imposing figure. His one claim to fame was this business of having been a fighter pilot in the war for the Malvinas slash Falklands with Argentina in the early 80s. But of course, that's led to his perhaps up to this point greatest point of ridicule, which is in the BBC interview about Ms. Dufresne's allegations, which include the fact that the claim by her that they had been dancing together at a nightclub and he had sweated all over her. He answered that by saying, well, because I had an excess of adrenaline during the Falklands Malvinas conflict, I've actually lost the capacity to sweat. So it's obvious that this is a lie, right? Now, this just ha has reached a point of absurdity to speak in such a way. And of course, even though he introduced this claim, his lawyers are now saying, well, of course, no one can look at his medical records to establish whether this was the case, because that would be an invasion of his privacy. Well, that question of privacy is always problematic with public figures in both legal and political senses. He's lost the right to privacy in lots of ways. And one of the dilemmas he now faces is that should Ms. Dufre wish to settle out of court, and settling out of court, needless to say, is often about who has the most money available for their defense or their prosecution, as it were. If she were to do that, that would suggest some kind of guilt on his part. If she were not to do that, and he were to come forward with a personal defense, that would open up much of his private life to even greater scrutiny. And again, I'm speaking with Toby Miller, who's a visiting professor at Tulane University, as well as a research professor of the Graduate Division at the University of California, Riverside, and the Sir Walter Murdoch Distinguished Collaborator at Murdoch University. And his most recent books are A Covert Charter, A Better World, Violence, The Persistence of Violence, and How Green Is Your Smartphone. So that would seem to me to be at the crux of this, Toby, and that is that the fact that the royal family and the queen herself, and he's supposedly her favorite son, has stripped him of his military ranks and he no longer can be referred to as your royal highness, that he's on his own as far as money's concerned, paying for this lawsuit by Virginia Gouffray, who was 17 at the time that she was supposedly trafficked by Epstein to London, to Ghislaine Maxwell's house where she was forced to have sex with this sweating bad dancer. So the fact that they've cut him loose, would that indicate that the royals and the mother know that the guy's guilty? I, I don't know whether it means they know he's guilty. I think what it means is that they think the scandal is going to go on and on and on and that really it's gone on long enough, and that whatever the outcome, 
whatever the outcome, including the possibility of his simply declining to appear before the court, his name is besmirched forever. And one thing about the family, or as they like to call themselves, the firm, is that if scandal reaches a certain point, you are simply cut off, cut out. And of course, that punishment is much greater and quicker in the case of women. Think of the way in which Meghan Markle and Diana were both brutally excluded from very early on because in some sense they didn't fit, whether that be about sexuality or gender or race or anything else. This has taken a lot longer to happen, but it's a, it's a profound fall from grace. And one can only hope that the British people come to their sense and like the citizens of Barbados, the latest country to become truly free of Britain, it gained independence in 1966, but only last year did it become a republic, that the British public will come to their senses like their Barbadian or Bajan cousins and simply get rid of this extraordinary anachronism of the royal family and become a mature democracy. Well, the same could apply to Australia, and they had a referendum on whether to become a republic or not, and the Australian majority voted against uh, cutting ties with the Queen. Your people, Ian. <laughs> well, not anymore. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm with the Tom Paine people. Oh, you're a, full, you're a fully-fledged gringo now? Absolutely. So Proud of it. Yeah, me too. So in any event, yes, of course, there are some countries that haven't made that step. Um, particularly these white settler colonies. But it's clear that it needs to happen because mm. these embarrassments are simply going to mount up. Already the damage done in terms of the supposed racism of the royal family surrounding Ms. Markle has become a scandal. But also the, the many racist remarks by the Queen's late husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, the rampant sexism throughout the family, the fact that these are uneducated, unskilled, untutored people who have virtually no real work experience. All of that uh, is accumulating and creating great discredit. And it's 25 years now since Diana died, but that really was a watershed in terms of people around the world because of their bizarre fixation on her. Uh, that's another matter. Well, I don't know that you're being fair to the Queen, and, and I'm certainly not a royalist. I think she's, from what I understand, the way she's handled various prime ministers, she's actually pretty astute. And I don't, I mean, Charles seems a, a, <laughs> an odd duck, but at least he's got, you know, good intentions in terms of his, his concerns about the environment, etc. So I don't think they're all completely useless. Well... Let's say that certainly I think you're right about the Queen being astute, as are her courtiers who advise her on these matters, that she has good lawyers and good politicians helping her in terms of what is her constitutional role, because a constitutional monarchy is a complex thing, very, very difficult to manage. That's fair to say. And in terms of her eldest son, well, Yes, it's true that he has some good sympathies, but he is also a grotesque hypocrite in terms of the environment. And of course, he has become a figure of fun. If you think about Queen Victoria, whose reign was from 1837 to 1901, and who was much loved, particularly because of these qualities of political astuteness, but her roly-poly son, um, Edward, who succeeded her for 10 years, roughly the sort of time frame that one could imagine Charles occupying the seat, was an absurdity and known as an absurdity before he entered the monarchical lounge. 
And unfortunately, or rightly or wrongly, that is the public view of Prince Charles as opposed to Queen Elizabeth. So just in the last couple of minutes, back to uh, Prince Andrew, the royal family stripped him of his titles and his military trappings, and he's on his own in terms of paying for this lawsuit. And the source for paying for this lawsuit is the sale of a $22 million ski lodge that he has in the Swiss resort of Verbier, which he's owed $9.1 million on forever. He just stiffed the owner, Isabelle Durouve, a uh, 74-year-old owner who's been at war with Prince Andrew to get paid. Now she's finally saying the war is over. He paid the money. Nobody quite knows where he got the $9 million from to pay this woman off in order to sell the building, the, sell the uh, chalet, which I think is about, there's about $4 million of equity left after all is said and done. So, And if Virginia Gouffre wants more than $4 million, then he's in trouble. But he's also got $2.7 million worth of legal bills as well. And apart, So apart from providing sex with underage girls, Epstein also gave Prince Andrew money for nothing, along with getting gifts from a Libyan arms smuggler and selling his mansion to the son-in-law of the president of Kazakhstan for way above its asking price. There's also Prince Andrew's failure to pay for his Swiss chalet, right? Not a good financial situation by the sound of it. No. And of course, should he be innocent, and I have no way of knowing whether he is innocent or guilty, then it would be uh, a sad thing indeed, should he essentially be bankrupted by this. But should he be guilty, then I think none of us would have any reservations about condemning not only his conduct, but also his basic imprudence and his failure to you know, study and gain a real profession. So yes, it could bankrupt him. It could be a ruinous thing for him and his guiltless children. And that would be, at one level, very unfortunate. But if you lead these high-rolling lives of privilege, you can't expect a great deal of popular public sympathy when things go wrong. Right. Well, just in closing, though, if he goes down, and which it sounds like he will, and if this thing goes to trial, all of these cans of worms will be opened up about who these other characters were that were covered in this effort by Epstein to pay everybody off back in 2009. So if Bill Clinton and particularly Donald Trump, Bill Gates, all kinds of prominent people that used the services of this dreadful guy, Epstein, at the expense of these young girls, underage girls who were exploited so cruelly and so horribly by these men, then I think there's some justice, you know, and I'm waiting for that day. It may not come, but it should. Well, that may be. Again, we don't know about the guilt or otherwise of those particular men and others. But this is clearly an issue of masculinity in general terms and one of elite white masculinity more particularly, that that kind of privilege and sense of supremacy simply has to come to an end. Well, I thank you for joining us, uh, Toby Miller. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Toby Miller, who's a visiting professor at Tulane University, as well as a research professor of the Graduates Division of the University of California, Riverside, and the Sir Walter Murdoch Distinguished Collaborator at Murdoch University. And his most recent books are A COVID Charter, A Better World, Violence, The Persistence of Violence, and How Green Is Your Smartphone. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, 
please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.